Thank you very much. <laughs> Hang up. Oh, wow. So that beard wasn't popular, was it? <laughs> no, I, if you like me, I've literally been missing my beard this second half of the week. I've been going to grab it and just not, nothing there. Anyway, uh, this morning we're looking at a theme of uh, revolution. And it's quite a powerful word, isn't it? Just the word itself, revolution. I wonder what it conjures up in your mind. I mean, for, for me, I, I wonder whether I, I think back to things like historical events, so sort of named revolutions like the American or the French, the Cuban or the Russian. Uh, maybe you think about an oppressed people or uh, a government or some system of authority that's uh, repressing its people. Maybe you think of uh, violence and revolt. Maybe you think of a cause of justice. Maybe you think of anger or the uncertainty that's around uh, a revolution. Now, these things, though, are not just in history, not just in the past, and they're not just things that we see on the TV screens far away. They also can be things in our own lives now. I wonder if many of you remember the London riots of 2011. I know that they were quite a while ago, but they're still quite fresh in the memory, aren't they? Um, I was living in Elephant Castle at the time of the riots, and uh, a couple of days into the, the, that week of riots, there was one that came up uh, the high street in Elephant and Castle up Woolworth Road. Now, I actually missed it only because I decided not to walk down the main street back from the station home, but decided to take the back streets instead. If I hadn't, I would have walked down and seen uh, just a, a scene of violence. Um, I went to the, the scene of that uh, riot the morning after. I was actually going to go and take some pictures. I thought, oh, well, it'd be interesting to see what was there. But to be honest, I didn't get the camera out of my bag at all. Like The atmosphere was just so odd like there was almost like a latent anger that was just around this atmosphere of people waiting for something to happen there was um, broken glass all across the streets and still things that had been kind of looted from shops but abandoned and left and people were just kind of waiting around seeing what would happen it was a real uncertain atmosphere and that uncertainty is something in our present as well. I wondered if you follow the news about Brexit. It's been quite hard not to, hasn't it? But one of the repeated refrains that we've had in our media has been sort of Brexit chaos. And we've had some like, different factions and different agendas that seem to be at play. And actually, we're in a place of going, well, it's quite uncertain what will happen. This uncertainty of what's happening next is, has made the news quite exciting, hasn't it? Watching going, well, what's Parliament cooked up now? But it's interesting, that uncertainty that we've been feeling through that whole process. Uh, now this week and next, uh, we're looking at Matthew's account of that first Easter week. And today we're exploring Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the start of the week that would end in his death. And to understand Matthew's telling of that story, uh, we need to understand the historical context that it's written into. We need to understand what it would have been like to have lived in first century Israel and first century Jerusalem to understand what's happening with this story. Uh, at the time that Jesus was around, uh, Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire. It was an occupying military power. So not only would uh, an everyday citizen have experienced uh, Roman troops all around uh, in their everyday lives, but they too would have had to have paid crippling taxes to be able to pay for this occupying army that's uh, so cruelly occupying the land. Israel and Jerusalem in particular was a land and a city that was awaiting a saviour. And that word that they would have used to describe that saviour at the time was a messiah. They were waiting for a messiah to come. And we actually still use that language in our, um, that word in our own language, don't we? So if you were to say to me, Andy, you have a Messiah complex, what would you be saying about me? That I think that I am the solution to the world's problems. I'm definitely not, by the way. 
But that, you know, that's the Messiah, a saviour, someone who is going to solve our problems. And the Messiah is a character that's promised right the way through the pages of Scripture and uh, the Bible. Uh, there are promises made at all these different points that point towards someone who is to come. And so this Messiah would be someone who would inherit the promises of characters like Abraham, that, this, uh, that there would be a blessing to the nations. Abraham's grandson, Judah, he receives a promise that this Messiah will be a king. And they will, come, uh, they will be one of his descendants and will usher in a golden era for God's people. And the first king that we find in the line of uh, Judah, um, we find, is King David. And he is a king who ruled Israel, and he did usher in a time of peace and prosperity. But he too failed. He was not a perfect king. But he was also given a promise that the Messiah would then be in his line, and in the generation that's to come, that we would be waiting for a future at some point, a son of David to come. And by Jesus' time, this Messiah, this Saviour, this son of David that people were waiting for, was seen as someone who would come and would overthrow this oppressive Roman rule. Just like in our time now, there were many different factions and agendas going on in Jesus' Israel. Uh, there was one faction called the Zealots. These were literally people that would arm themselves like terrorists and live up in the hills and would come down and raid uh, Roman convoys and things like that. Their main agenda was to seek to overthrow Roman rule through the force of arms. Some of Jesus' own disciples, some of the twelve, were Zealots. There's one that's introduced to us in Matthew's Gospel as Simon the Zealot. And this overthrow of Roman, um, uh, Roman rule was a hugely popular belief. I don't know if you know, but 35 years after Jesus died, uh, the Jewish nation did rise up in rebellion against Rome, and Rome hit back hard. You can still see the scars on the land from the, the retribution that Rome brought on the land through this, um, uh, the Jewish uprising. And it culminated in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and it's devastation that you can still see today. Now, uh, if you've been around every day for a while, you'll know that there's a group of uh, people from Everyday Church, 50 or so, that have come across for a Bible tour uh, in Israel right now. Uh, I did that same trip a couple of years ago. And one of the sites that you go and visit uh, is this one. So this is the, the big wall that you see there. That's the Temple Mount. So it's this raised platform. It's gigantic. And it would uh, have dominated the old, uh, the old ancient city of Jerusalem. Those stones that you see there are what remains of the second temple. That was the temple that stood when Jesus was alive. And as he went into Jerusalem, when uh, the Romans came and took the city in 70 AD, the soldiers destroyed the temple and they destroyed it by pushing the blocks off the edge of the platform. And so you can almost see the violence in this image. And it, in one way, it's a pile of rocks. But look how they've smashed into the pavement that's below. The Romans considered this such a victory that the returning general, um, they had an arch put up to honour him in Rome. It's this one, it's called the Titus Arch. If you were to go and walk around it, you would see uh, there's one uh, relief on, on, the, on the arch there that depicts Roman soldiers taking treasures, Jewish treasures, from their temple and bringing them back to Rome. But before these destructive events, before this revolution that had kicked off, we see in our story today into this revolutionary powder cake, into this atmosphere of uncertainty and latent violence, steps Jesus riding up to Jerusalem on a donkey. And because of this revolution in the air, we've entitled this Easter uh, series, so the sermon that I'll give now, but also then on Good Friday and Good Sunday, we've entitled this mini-series Revolution Origins. 
And it's a nod towards our sermon series that we're going to have after Easter, which is called The Revolution Has Begun. You may have seen some of the posters around the building as you came in. Look out for them on your way out if you didn't. And there we're going to go through the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament and look at how we're going to learn over the weeks and months to come that God's revolution is better than anything that we could have conjured. But for today, our title is this, The Arrival of the King, as we read about Jesus riding into Jerusalem. So let me reread the passage uh, for today. I'll put the words on the screen uh, behind me. So it's uh, Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. But if you have your Bible, do turn there. But let me read these to you. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, let's start our reflections on this passage by looking at the expectations of uh, the crowd to make sense of what they were singing and saying. I wonder if you clocked what they said in verse uh, 9, these words that they were singing out. See that first one, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, this word uh, Hosanna literally means something like save, save us. It's a cry like help is probably how we would say it in our language now. They're basically crying out. It's a plea for salvation. Please save us. Help save us. And they're singing to this character, the son of David. And Jerusalem is the city that King David had made his capital nearly a thousand years before. But for half that time, for 500 years, the Jews had been waiting and praying for a king like David to return and arrive and save them from oppression. Perhaps this was the moment. That's what we get the clue with, this, with these words that they're singing here. They may be wondering, is this the long-awaited moment that our freedom is arriving? And verse 10 describes how as Jesus enters into the city, it's the whole city, not just the crowds that are stirred, shaken, literally shaken like an earthquake with this news. You can imagine this palpable excitement that spreads throughout the city. I mean, it would have been a fantastic scene, wouldn't it? What a possession to be um, a part of. These guys, this whole crowd singing songs about a victorious Messiah. People are taking off the cloaks off their back. They're likely only to have one. People in that time didn't have the amount of possessions and stuff that we did. They would have taken their one cloak off and put it in front of Jesus riding on this donkey. A sign of honour and sacrifice, particularly if you only had the one cloak. This crowd was doing it probably in a sign of loyalty towards Jesus. Certainly maybe as a sign of hope. Wow, maybe this is the Messiah. Others are chopping down branches from the palm trees and either waving them round in jubilant celebration or putting them down to, again for Jesus to ride over. This is a jubilant procession. It's like party time. And it's a huge moment. Uh, just a few verses later, if you were to read on the passage in verse 15, Matthew tells us of the 
children that are singing the songs that their, their parents sang the day before. They're still singing them around the city, particularly in the temple courts. It's like they've been caught up in the excitement of those days before and they're almost trying to relive those moments as they're singing these words. Expectations are set high. And Messiah is like the one that the Jews are waiting for in this moment. They tend to come in two forms, either with great power or with great wealth. And let me give you just two examples from history. I wonder if you've ever heard of the king Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa. He is the 13th, uh, he was the king of Mali in the 1300s. And he is reportedly the wealthiest man that has ever lived. At the Malian Empire at the time, they had these hugely lucrative gold mines that produced gold by the ton. And as the king, he owned every single bit of gold that came out of those mines. Uh, he was a Muslim. And as a devout Muslim, he went on pilgrimage to Mecca, as this uh, map uh, shows. That's the line going up into Saudi Arabia. Uh, as he left on this uh, pilgrimage, it's reported that he left with a caravan of 60,000 men. That's a holiday and a half that you're financing, isn't it? You and 60,000 of your mates as you go on your worldwide tour. And it's reported that he was so wealthy, so generous with his handouts, so generous and lavish was he in giving out his gold, that during his three-month stay in Cairo, which is on the way to Mecca, he caused the price of gold to plummet, not only in that city, but the country of Egypt. He caused the price of gold to plummet for 10 years. So much did he swamp the market with gold that it lessened its value for 10 years. That's one way to leave your mark on the city, isn't it, with your wealth? Or how about displays of military power? Uh, We still have military uh, parades today, don't we? Tanks and huge missiles, thousands of troops fly past from uh, impressive uh, warplanes. In Jesus' time, they would have looked slightly different. They would have had a general sat on uh, an impressive war horse or being uh, carried around here in like a lavish uh, chariot. They would have been followed by thousands of their troops armed to the teeth. Behind them would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of prisoners that they had taken from their victorious campaigns, marching them through the street in humiliation for whoever the defeated nation is. And behind them would have been treasures that they had plundered from their enemies. And I wonder whether this is what the crowds were expecting and wanting as Jesus arrived into Jerusalem. A saviour with wealth and power. Someone to kick those Romans out, to fight their battles, to win the day. Someone to usher in a new age of wealth and prosperity. But does the pilgrimage of Mansa Musa or the return of a victorious general sound like the story that Matthew is telling us in these verses? Is this the type of Messiah that Jesus is going to be? Because I think as you read it, there seems to be something else going on, doesn't it? Remember how the passage began. Jesus needed to borrow a donkey to come into Jerusalem. Jesus was not a rich or a powerful man. This entry into Jerusalem was not a flaunting of his wealth. Rather, it was a statement of humility. I wonder if you noticed the quotation that Matthew used from the prophet Zechariah in the middle of our passage today. As an aside, Matthew, out of the four gospel writers that we have, he is the one that fills his eyewitness account of Jesus' life with all of these references to the Old Testament and these prophecies that were made there and how they're being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And in our passage today, he quotes this in verses 4 and 5. He quotes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. He says this, This took place, so these events, Jesus coming into the city, they took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he wasn't riding uh, like a stride, a horse, a symbol of warfare and the choice of conquerors. Uh, He didn't even do it on a a mule, uh, which was the steed usually of Jewish kings like King David himself. No, rather he chose a donkey, a pack animal, a lowly beast of burden. He chose a donkey to be his royal mount. And as Zechariah prophesied, he came humbly and bringing peace. How different from the crowd's expectation. But before we judge the crowd too harshly, uh, let's remember we are not too dissimilar from the crowd. Uh, We too can only turn to God when we want something. Often when we want something really badly. And those things can be serious or trivial, trivial. so they can be things like health crises or financial difficulties, facing pressures at work, maybe even just an embarrassing conversation that you don't want to have. Do you know, I wonder if the most common prayer that we pray is simply help. We, like the crowd, we want a Messiah and a Saviour to rescue us from our biggest felt needs. And like the crowds uh, who wanted to be freed then from this surface evil of Roman occupation and the exploitation of the rich, you know, we too can want to be freed from what feels like right now to be so pressing in our lives. But Jesus didn't come just so that we would have a sort of magic genie that we could rub in the right way and he would grant all of our wishes. Instead, Jesus came to rescue us from the full depths of evil. The Jews are expecting a king like some great military leader like King David who would come and throw off the yoke of Rome and establish God's kingdom by force. Yet Jesus did not arrive with a sword in his hands, but gently on a borrowed donkey. Jesus had not come to lead Jerusalem into a violent revolution. He hadn't come to splash his clash or to flaunt his power before others. He had come to be killed. And he had come to wage war on our worst and ultimate enemies of sin and of death. He came to Jerusalem that he would die on a pagan cross. To die and to die in our place. The kingdom of God that Jesus preached and practiced was not an earthly political kingdom. But it was the rule of God in people's hearts. People who love, know and serve him. The crowds would have been disappointed with Jesus on this day. But the good news is that their disappointment too was only at a surface level. Deep down, Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem is the moment when salvation, true salvation, dawns. This is the start of the revolution. And it's a revelation of God's great redemptive plan to rescue the world and to restore everything that has been broken or destroyed or corrupted. The hosannas of the crowd, these cries and pleas, help, save us, please. These cries were totally justified, though not for the reasons that the crowd first supposed. Do you know the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he will answer our help prayers. And in doing so, he doesn't wait for our motives to be pure. He doesn't wait for us to have everything sorted so that we can come before him and do business with him as equals or as partners. No, Jesus came to show us a better way. Because the truth is that once you ask Jesus, once you invite him to come and help you, he will, but more thoroughly, more thoroughly than you ever imagined and more deeply than you ever thought possible. Jesus turned the whole of Jerusalem upside down. And the wonderful news is that Jesus didn't just do this 2,000 years ago, but he's still doing it in our lives today. 
This is the act of God that he's still doing. Turning things the right way up. He is subverting our expectations, turning things on their heads, meeting our deepest needs and showing us a better way. He is transforming lives today. Now in this moment, if I opened uh, an open mic and shared it around and asked us all to share our stories of God's transformation in our lives, we would be here for a long time. There are so many stories in this room, aren't there, of God's great transforming work in our lives in our day. But I did want a, one person to be able to share their story with us. Because it's very tangible then for us to realise that this isn't just something that happens in the past. This is something that God is doing in the lives of people today. And so I'd like to introduce you to my friend Molly. She comes to the evening services usually. Although you may recognise her if you take your kids into Everyday Kids. She's one of our kids team leaders. Um, she also hosted our family nativity service back in last uh, December. So she might be a familiar face to you. But she has a wonderful story of how God came into her life. And I'd like you to welcome her now as she comes up to share her story. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, so as Andy said, I'm Molly. And if 18 months ago you would have told me that I'd be, even at church, let alone standing and talking at church, I would have probably thought you were a little bit crazy. Um, my Sundays usually consisted of me slumped on a sofa, regretting what I'd done the night before or the night before that, um, feeling pretty rough and probably having overdue essays, which still happens now, to be honest. But... Um, uh, but Sundays were never a day that I would consider coming to church. Um, and one of my friends said to me, do you know what, I've started coming to a new church, I've started coming to everyday church in Wimbledon, do you want to come with me? And I said, no, um, I don't want to come with you to church, I'd much rather stay here. Um, and I had a very downhearted uh, flatmate, and she went, and she, she luckily never gave up, but she decided to leave it. Um, just for then, I, I wasn't going to come to church. I thought, how dare she actually ask me to come to church? Um, and then in November 2017, I was a student teacher. Um, I just actually finished being a student teacher, and I was on placement. Now, placement is... One of the best and worst things, if you know any student teachers and they're going through placement, love them because it's really hard. Um, <laughs> so placement, basically, if you don't know, is great for one thing because it gets you out of uni, uh, but it's bad for one thing because you end up teaching 30 children all of the time without getting paid. So basically, your life turns into this mayhem that you don't really understand. And at the end of November, beginning of December, I, I finished my placement and I thought, I'm going to go out and celebrate because that's what I like doing. That's what I'm going to do. So I went out. I went out. I was clubbing. Um, I was having the best night of what I thought of my life. You know, this is going to be great. I've just finished placement. I can let go. I haven't got any plans this weekend, so I can really, you know, do whatever I want. Um, and it came to the end of the night and I actually was I'm not done yet. All of my friends were going home and I was like, why? Come out with me. Let's carry on. Why are you going home? And so I text my flatmate um, and I said, oh, what are you up to? And she was like, oh, I'm hanging out with the Christians. My face was like, what? No, I want to go out. I want to have fun. Christians aren't fun. What are you on about? Like, come on now. Um, and she was like, oh, why don't you come join us? We're just, we're just up the road. Come join us. Um, and I thought, oh, all right then. And I turned up and I saw who I was going to hang out with. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? Why? I don't want to hang out with these people. They're going to, like, try convert me. They're going to, like, start preaching at me in the middle of a club. Like, that's not what I want. I'm here to have fun. 
Um, and they said to me at the end of the evening, there were about five or six of us, they said at the end of the evening, 2am in a McDonald's, so you're going to come to church on Sunday? I said no. Um, I was like, no, I'm not coming to church, no matter how hard you try. I don't actually want to go. Um, it's not something I want to do. I'm not, I'm not actually too bothered about it, to be honest. I'm okay. Um, because I, what I thought, I was living the best life. I was living the high life. I was having a great time. And um, that Sunday morning, Sunday the 3rd of December, um, I woke up and I thought, oh, do you know what? I could go to church because I've got an evening service and there's a pub around the corner. So what I could do is I could come to the evening service and just get them all to the pub. What a great influence I am, you know. These poor people who are trying to help me and be nice to me. I was like, oh, let's all go to the pub after church. Um, and I decided to come late because I was like, I don't want to be... My flatmate had already left and come because I was like, I don't, I don't want anyone to talk to me because they're Christian. They might try and be nice to me. How dare they? Um, I don't want anyone to talk to me as I come in the room. So I snuck in, I snuck in the back and um, I sat in the corner and actually one of the songs that Josh was singing was playing it um you know this is amazing grace and I didn't really understand what the words were saying however what I did know was within five five seconds of me actually listening to what the song was saying I broke down into tears I was filled with the Holy Spirit I gave my life to Jesus and six weeks later I got baptized God completely changed my life um you know, I can't, in fact, when I look back on it, I can't actually fathom how much he changed my life completely. One of the main ways he changed my life, and people actually, when I say this to people, in fact, when I said it in the morning service, one of my youth came up to me and they were like, no way, you was definitely not like that. And I was like, yeah, because <laughs> they can't believe it. I was a massive bully all throughout my life, um, particularly at high school and when I came to university. I was a massive bully. I remember just before I went to secondary school, my dad said to me, now Molly, you've got bright ginger hair and the likelihood is people are going to pick on you because you've got bright hair and you're a, you're a key subject that they can pick on deliberately. And I thought, right, that, I, can't, I cannot let that happen. I don't want to be picked on. I don't want to be bullied. So how do you not be a, 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 get bullied? You become one. So on the first day, I made sure I picked out the people that I wanted to be friends with. Um, and they were the cool kids, and because I knew I was quite funny, um, and I knew I was a loud, bubbly personality, I was like, I'll be the class clown. That's how I'm going to climb on top of the social pyramid. And I did uh, for years. I thought it was great. I was on top of everything. I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm using this great personality that I've got, because I thought, oh my goodness, I'm great. Um, I was like, I'm going to use this. I know, I know how to manipulate a conversation. People do what they want because they're either scared of me or they think that what I'm saying is right. They think that what I'm saying is good. So I climbed up, but that meant that I would knock people down. And the reason I'm saying this is when I, was, uh, when I first became a Christian, I sat around, we, I think it must have been a prayer week that the um, church had been having and um, myself and my friendship group for, that I'd found at church who are incredible by the way um, for sharing their faith from one um, but also just amazing I came we were sat in this room and we were talking about high school and what we were like at high school and you know some some of us had just graduated some of us were about to graduate and we were talking about how how high school seemed so far away but it was only five years ago and I remember looking at every single one of their faces and thinking, I would have been mean to every single one of you. In fact, I look at some of the eldership team, I probably would have been mean to every single one of them. I probably would have been mean to many of you here, to be honest. 
it's not great. It's not something I'm proud of. And that's not why I'm sharing it. I'm sharing it because that's not who I am anymore. And that's not because I've gone, okay, you're going to be nicer now. God has completely changed my heart. He's given me a love that I didn't actually realise I could have. As I said, I'm a teacher. Um, and I've always really loved kids, but I always thought they were really annoying. Now, I love them, even though they're annoying. <laughs> I, I never used to do that. And he's also given me a love for teenagers that I'd never thought I could even have. I'm one of our youth leaders here um, at, at every day, and I'm here on most Fridays. I would be here every Friday night if I could be. I think it's crazy to think that two years ago, my Friday nights were going out, and now my Friday nights are hanging out with teenagers Lots of my uni friends can't understand that. They can't understand why I have changed from going out on what looks like a worldly view of having the best time ever. And in reality, I'm now hanging out with teenagers and I can tell you now, 100% it is 20, 30, 50 times better hanging out with these teenagers and watching their lives be completely changed. I've understood that God gave me this loving personality and this bubbly personality not to, you know, manipulate people and to lead people in an ungodly way. He's given it to me so I can lead people in a godly way to him, um, which is just incredible. And sometimes it's actually really handy just to look and think back. In fact, during in between the services, I've texted some of my friends and I said, actually, if you hadn't have shared your faith, if you hadn't have said to me, do you want to come to church? Do you want to come to this carol service? And I said no. I said no two, three times to the same people and two, three times to strangers who I'd just met. I said no to them. But if they hadn't have stuck with it and carried on doing it, I might not have ever come to church or not for ages. But I saw God through them. I didn't realise I was seeing God through them. I thought these are some nice people. So I think... One way that Andy said to me, Molly, how are you going to land it? How, what are you going to tell everyone? And the one thing that I think is so incredible about Jesus, and I still can't get my head around, and I don't think actually I ever will, is where I was walking in a world that looked to me like it was incredible, that it was amazing, but actually Jesus came into my life and turned my world the right way up. I was walking in a world that was upside down. He didn't come and turn my life upside down. He knew that I needed to change things in my life. And this isn't me standing up here and being like, I'm now perfect. I'm now the best friend ever. I'm really loving to everyone. I'm not. I'm not. But Jesus has changed my life so much and I see so much of how my life has been impacted by Jesus that I can't help but share it so it's just an encouragement really if you've got a friend in mind that you've gone I can't invite them to church they'll have been out the night before they won't want to come or oh I can't invite them they've said no so many times that I could never invite them to church invite them and invite them again and invite them again and if they say no keep inviting them because one day they will say yes Something in their life will make them say yes. And that's Jesus. Jesus does work in people. He does because he's worked completely in me and so many people here. And I just think, ask that person that's going to be really difficult. Ask the person that is going to say no to you and let them say yes, because they will say yes. Yeah, that's it from me. Good story, hey? 
And isn't it encouraging to hear of Jesus changing lives now? Isn't it wonderful? God is so good to us, so gentle and kind and caring, always wanting what's good for us. Ah, and Molly's story demonstrates that so well. Thank you for sharing. Let me just share a couple of concluding thoughts before we hand back to uh, the band and Nathan and uh, Dan who will lead us into communion. But we've been looking this morning at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem and the, uh, the humble way in which he entered into Jerusalem. But you know, greater humiliation waited Jesus at the end of this Easter week. Because as I said, he had come to uh, Jerusalem to die and to be crucified. And that's what we'll get to explore together on Good Friday in a few days' time. I really encourage you to come back and join us here uh, to be able to celebrate and think about, dwell on, reflect on Jesus' death on the cross for us. Uh, Our very own Tom Cruikshank is going to be sharing, and it's going to be a wonderful time where we get to think again about the great humiliation that Jesus went through that we don't have to. But today we leave the story with this spark of revolution in the air. And it looks very different from what we might have expected, but it's better than we ever dead dreamed. And I'd like then to leave you with the challenge. It's the question that the, cra- the city asked to the crowd, who is this? Who is it that you're following? Who is the Jesus that you say that you know? Who, is, who would you say that Jesus is? What do you think he is like? And I want to encourage you this Easter, if you've never investigated Jesus before, let this be the time. Come and hear more about who he is and the amazing things that he's done for you. If you've been a Christian for ages, or maybe not long at all, but you've already encountered this truth, you're like, this has changed my life, then enjoy this Easter and this retelling of the God's great story of redemption as we get to enjoy again all that God is doing in our lives, but will do through our lives and will do through the world that we see around us. Investigate the real Jesus this Easter This Jesus who came to rescue us from our mortal foes.